Yeah, absolutely. Well, good morning, Connect Church. It is so nice to see you. Uh, so inspired. I have known your pastor Dave for a bunch of years now, and he just continues to inspire me and continue to uh, just challenge people in the kingdom, and it's just awesome. Well, my name is Jason Reitz. I am very honored to be with you today as we dive into God's Word. And I just want to start with a question. Uh, here's the question. How do you, how do I, how do we uh, deal with the onslaught of hate that just seems to be poured out all around us all the time. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, maybe you've been online and you've just seen the hate. Maybe you've been in a, the line at a grocery store and you've seen the hate. You've felt the hate. You've heard the hate. Maybe you've been at a sports game or wherever you are. But it's just fascinating that in 2022, it feels like the onslaught of hate the lack of respect, the lack of di dignity, I mean, even the lack of niceness <laughs> is just going, 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 going. I mean, it's not a new thing. I can remember back to my freshman year of high school, uh, and um, we started the freshman year. I, I did not uh, do what you call um, uh, good when it came to, you know, academics. I don't even know if that's the right way to say that. But math, English, science, history, not really in my sweet spot. Band. Uh, I was a band aide one semester. Um, I soared in that class. That was amazing. But I just didn't do good. But freshman year, uh, my English teacher's name was Mrs. Stressman. Uh, still stresses me out. Uh, wonderful teacher, wonderful person. But very first day, she assigns us this long paper. And those of us who are uh, under 30 in the room, I'm probably going to shock you. But I, I couldn't type it out on a computer in my house because... We weren't NASA. I mean, it seemed like only NASA had computers in, our, in their houses during those days. And so I had to hand write it with a pen in this crazy language called cursive. Things that I, I, don't, even, I don't even use cursive anymore. Only my mom, I think, uses cursive. She'll like write out, and I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And so my, my hand was sore and we started the school year, I begged my parents, mom and dad, here's my school supply list, but there's one thing that I need desperately bad, and everybody's getting it, and mom and dad, please, and it was something called a trapper keeper. Now, those of you who don't know what this is, this was a three-ring binder, okay, but it had this flap on the end, and it was like, it flapped, and there is Velcro that was like literally created by NASA, and it could hold everything in. And on the cover of your Trapper Keeper, you could get cool things like kitties playing in a field. You could get, you know, a unicorn over a, a rainbow waterfall. You could get the Millennium Falcon. Like, it was amazing. But my parents, it was a little tight, could not get the Trapper Keeper, so I just had the old three-ring binder. Finished the paper. I couldn't even staple it. I put it in my binder, and I'm walking down the hallway, and I see Mrs. Stressman's class it's at the end of the hallway. And you ever have those moments where you just sense evil? Like you know evil is coming. And evil in my ninth grade year came in the form of a seven foot hundred tall freshman by the name of Rich. I won't give you his last name, Rich Mobley. Not that I've looked him up on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> but he was the only freshman kid with a Tom Selleck mustache. I mean, big and full and... It was like just like a gerbil underneath his lip or his nose. It was huge. And he always had a couple buttons undone, and he smelled like Old Spice. There's no way he was a freshman 
He was like 22 in a freshman uh, class. But I was walking to the hallway, and I was four foot six freshman year of high school. Um, those of you who feel bad about yourselves, I just made you feel so much better about yourself. And I'm ducking and weaving through the hallway. I'm trying to get there, and the evil came behind me. And just as I was about to break into a clearing, he hit my three-ring binder perfectly, and my papers went everywhere in the hallway. And I, like, the whole hallway for a second paused, and then they just kept going. And some kids would, you know, push my papers down the hallway. I, I, you've probably been in those moments where you've experienced the onslaught of hate. Maybe the reverse, you've actually done the onslaught of hate. Maybe you've been in the position where you just watched it and laughed. But the reality is, is that we live in a world where we're going to experience hate and a lack of kindness and dignity and respect. But for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, and if you're here today and you have not done that yet, we're so glad that you're here and you're exploring your faith, but if you've given your life to Jesus, you've confessed that you have sinned against him, you've asked for forgiveness, you believe who Jesus says he is, that he's God's son, he died on the cross for our sins, three days later he rose again, he defeated sin, he defeated shame, he defeated hopelessness, and when he rose again from the dead, joy and hope and salvation entered the world and when you've given your life over to him and then you took the obedient step of baptism, publicly proclaiming that I'm a Christ follower, well, now you and I have this great purpose and God gives us this opportunity for us to combat the onslaught of hate and the onslaught of people mistreating each other. And so we get to do that. Actually, in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 11, it says this, and it's really simple. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should love one another. So my challenge and encouragement to you today, I hope you walk away with this. I hope it, it, it kind of interrupts your lunch as you guys talk about what you learned about at church. But I hope that each of us, we will take the challenge to choose love every time, every opportunity. Choose love every time, every opportunity. Uh, and it's, if we're going to choose love, um, we got to follow a roadmap. It's not just we just don't go, oh, I'm going to love you. Oh, I'm going to love you. No, we actually have a great roadmap. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote this book called 1 Corinthians. And in it, in chapter 13, he gives us this incredible roadmap on how we can choose love. And how we can choose love. Uh, and so we want to just walk through those kind of verse by verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 13. It's going to be on the screen if you follow along on your phone, if you have the Bible on there, or you brought your Bible, follow along. But we're going to go through each verse, and we're going to learn how we can choose love every time, every opportunity. The first verse, it says this. Um, and now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Some call this chapter the hymn of love. 
Some say it's a definition. This is like what Jesus Christ looks like himself. Now, the reality is, is Paul, the guy who's writing this, is writing to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church live in this town called Corinth. And the Corinthian church just, and the, the people who live in Corinth love intelligence. They love intellectual people. They love philosophy. They would sit around and go, is God so big? He could make a rock that even God can't move. Like just really deep, really deep stuff. And so he comes at them right from the beginning with uh, kind of speaking right to where they're at. He's talking about eloquence and things of intelligence. And so Paul uses this thing called hyperbole, which hyperbole is this exaggeration. And he says, listen, even if you know all the earthly languages, you can speak them all. Even if you know the angelic languages, you can speak them all. But if you don't have love, it's worthless. It's worthless. does not matter. If you kill it listening to Rosetta Stone, and then you can quote back the phrases in Spanish or French or German or English or whatever it is, does not matter. But if you don't have love, it just is not as powerful. And then he says, um, the reality is, is that love is not like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, I majored in music. I went to to college in 1993. I went to this little school called Eastern Michigan University. I played the trumpet. Now, if you know anything about bands, you know that the trumpet is the best instrument in the world. Uh, The flutes, they're so nice. The clarinets, aw. The saxophones, kind of cool, but the trumpets... Like the brass in a marching band is where it's at until the cymbal players come out. And so we'd be playing, and then the cymbal player, he'd start to shake the cymbals, and you could hear them start to go, and then we'd play, and then the cymbal players would just smash. And they're shaking the cymbals, and everyone's ooing and on, and look at how gorgeous the cymbals are. And then, and then guess what happened? It would fade away. And then the trumpets would come back and carry the melody and carry the band like we always have. But the cymbals, though, Paul is saying the cymbals, love is not like a cymbal. Love is not big and brilliant and bright, and then it just fades away. That's not love. That's not love. That's not love. So Paul says, doesn't matter if you speak every language. Without love, it's worthless. Love's got to be supreme in your mind. Then verse 2, Paul says this, if I have the gift of prophecy, ooh, big word, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul shows us like four huge intellectual powers here. If you don't know what these mean, um, prophecy is the power to interpret or to clear. It's the ability to look in the scripture and then pull the truth out. And then mysteries is the understanding of spiritual things. The understanding of spiritual things. My, my now 19-year-old, since he's been like two or three or four, he's always asked me deep questions. We'll be brushing our teeth and he would ask me, Dad, how did God create the world? And it's like, wow, big question. You know, Bobby, he created the world without lifting a finger. Wow. And then he, Bobby asked another deep spiritual question. And then one day he asked, Dad, if God knew Anakin would go to the dark side, why 
did he create him and why did he let him go to the dark side? I mean, just deep, powerful stuff, powerful stuff. But mysteries is the understanding of those spiritual things. And then knowledge, knowledge is intelligence in the truth. Like you have the gift of just taking the truth of God's word and understanding it. And then the last one he says is faith, faith. One of the best definitions I've ever found for faith is the quality which gives us mastery over life's difficulties. The quality which gives us mastery over life's difficulties. Have you ever met those people who just, they're going through a terrible season of life. I mean, they're going through what the psalmist talked about, the muck and the mire, and they're just trudging their way towards it, and they still have their eyes focused on God. Have you ever met people like that? That's faith. That's having the gift of faith. So Paul says, even if you have all these intellectual powers, and again, he uses hyperbole, because he's saying it's not, not important to learn. Obviously, it's important. God gave us a mind, and he gave us a mind to think. But he's saying, listen, love must be supreme in your mind and your heart. And then verse three, Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's like, again, up in the hyperbole, like the exaggeration. I have a 14-year-old daughter. I love her. Her name is Maddie. She's incredible. She can exaggerate with the best of them. Maddie, how was your day? Oh, it was okay. I mean, just incredible. My eight-year-old son, he can exaggerate with the best of them. I'm so starving. Maybe you know someone who can exaggerate. Paul here, like he brings out the hyperbole. He says, if I give everything I own to the poor and then I surrender my body to the flames. Seems a bit much, Paul. Like this is not like walking across the coals in like a, you know, a work, a work retreat where you're doing like trust exercises. Paul is saying even self-sacrifice can be self-centered. Even self-sacrifice can be self-centered. Have you ever met the people who like <clears throat> donate to a charity? most grocery stores do that now. I don't know if yours does here. You get done in the pain. They're like, hey, do you want to donate a dollar to wherever? And, and it's great. You can do those kind of things and be generous. And then there's sometimes people are like, yep, I just donated a dollar. Don't give too many likes, but you know, give me a couple likes. Like he's saying even self-sacrifice. And then he's saying even the ultimate sacrifice is worthless without love because love gives without boasting. Love is silent. And so he's saying love must be supreme in our hearts and our minds and our wills. I love, I love history. I love history. Uh, I don't know if you love history. Uh, I love the history of baseball. And I love the history of Hootie and the Blowfish. I am the greatest Hootie and the Blowfish fan that has ever existed. Some of you under 35, you've never heard of Hootie. But later, I'll tell you about the joy of only want to be with you and you will be having a great day. But I love history because I love looking into the past to learn what the future could look like. And in 1962, the Supreme Court said the history of men is inseparable from the history of religion. So I wanna look back to the history of the early church for a second because those of us who are a part of this church home, we stand on the shoulders of Christians who have been a part of the local church since Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And so... Um, in A.D. 64, there's this giant empire in the world called Rome, and they were the it empire. They controlled everything. They were taking over everything. Everywhere they went, they just took it with force. And the emperor of Rome in A.D. 64 was this guy by the name of Nero, and he was a scumbag. 
like absolutely horrible, he hates Christians. He persecutes them. He does horrendous things to Christians. I don't want to offend anybody, but like if somebody doesn't comment or if somebody doesn't send us a card or if somebody cuts us off, that's not persecution. It's, it's just not. I, I know it hurts. Why did Aunt Sarah like her post but not mine? That's not persecution. Persecution, and I don't mean to get too graphic, but Nero would pour tar on Christians, and then he would put them on poles in his garden, and he would light them on fire to be the light for his parties. He would tie hides of animals around them, and he would drag them around and unleash wild animals on them. I mean, this is what Christians went through in the early church. Then, if that's not enough... Here comes the 200s, and this historian by the name of Tertullian, he writes to the emperor, and he's, he says, you got to stop the persecution. This is ridiculous. It's not working. It's AD 200, and the Christians are still here. It wasn't that Rome uh, wanted to, to just flush out Christianity. Rome had hundreds of gods, but they didn't understand Christianity. They heard rumors that the Christians hung out in graves because they had to meet in, you know, in secret in the catacombs. They, they heard that Christians um, ate the flesh and drank the blood of Jesus. And so that, they were like, what is happening? So then in 250, this emperor by the name of Decius comes along, and he is just horrible to Christians. And then comes 300, Diocletian, the worst Roman emperor of them all. Like, he tries to wipe them out. But here's the, here's the question. Did it work? Did they kill Christianity? No. We're here. We're here all these years later because love was supreme for those early Christians. Love of God and love of others. It's what drove them. And Christianity only became stronger. And so when love is supreme in our hearts for God and for others, look out. Because God will use us as kingdom builders. God will use us to do great things. So choose love every time you get an opportunity. Every time, every opportunity. Choose love. Now, how do we do that? Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7 gives us some really practical ways. Okay, let me read this, 1 Corinthians 34. I bet you know it. I bet you know it really well. In 26 years of being a pastor, I've officiated lots of weddings. I stand in front of the bride and the groom, and a lot of times they want this passage read. And so I've read this a lot. I watched my grandma cross-stitch it too. It was above her dining room table. And so these can't be like those verses that we just have heard a bunch. Like these have to be part of our everyday operating system. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not proud. It does not boast. Love is patient. See, Paul here shifts from the first person to the third person. He replaces himself with the personification of love. Some people see the fruit of the Spirit here. Some people see Jesus. But he starts with patience because the Corinthian church we're all up in lawsuits with each other. They just mistreated each other like crazy. So those of us who think things are um, 
so horribly bad and the onslaught of hate is, is epic in 2022, that's probably true. But it, it, it was also epic when Paul was writing this. Christians attacked Christians and non-Christians attacked Christians. And so he starts with patience. And in the original language of the New Testament, which is this language called the Koine Greek, um, patience can be defined the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. The capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. Like, let that sit in for a second. Like, that's just crazy talk. I and my wife, we have five children. We have five children. Uh, what would it be like in the course of their childhoods if they never retaliated against each other? Like my older boys are 19 and 17. They still retaliate against each other. Like they were nine and seven and four and two. Like when my oldest, who's 22 now, was seven and she would settle our Barbies up and then the boys would be over in the, the, behind the couch with like the, like the Rambo makeup on and the headband and they were like getting ready to attack her Barbies and then she'd leave the room and they'd walk out and destroy the Barbies and then Becca would walk back into the room and then she would go ballistic on them. Patience, patience. Here's the thing about patience. Patience suffers long. It's silent, it endures, it waits, it's not hasty, it's slow to become resentful. Another way to think of it is it takes a long time to boil. It takes a long time to boil. It's like if you have an electric stove, 